Hello everybody and thank you for joining us um, on our podcast today called Trauma, What It Is and How It Affects Us. My name is Karen McQuinney, I am a clinical psychologist and I have worked with children and young people in mental health for nearly 30 years now. So you're very welcome today in our podcast. Um, it's one of the youth mental health podcasts that the Northern Trust are developing. Um, and I would like to introduce my colleague, Kira, who's going to be talking a lot today. Hello, everybody. And my name is Kira Downs, and I'm also a clinical psychologist um, working in the Northern Trust. Um, and yeah, today, Karen, we're going to really think about trauma and how it impacts on children and young people. OK, so Kira, could you tell us a little bit about what trauma is and how it might impact on children and young people? Yeah, so Karen, trauma is a word we hear a lot nowadays, isn't it? And many events that we experience are certainly distressing or stressful, but not necessarily traumatic. So when we're talking about trauma, it's really the impact of the event on the person that makes it a traumatic event. So we know that trauma is usually an intense experience that can threaten maybe your physical well-being or maybe your emotional well-being. When trauma was first recognised, it was thought it was something really outside of normal human experience because a lot of the research at the time was on trauma in veterans. So, you know, after the world wars, um, researchers noticed that many were reacting with what was called at the time shell shock. Um, but now we know that many different experiences that some that are even quite common can be traumatic depending on the age that it happens to a person and particularly for children and when it happens in the first few years of life. So being traumatized is not so much about the event itself but about our experience of it um, and it's usually something that really greatly exceeds our capacity to manage emotionally. So trauma can be a result of exposure to events like war or political conflict like the Troubles in Northern Ireland or to like a single incident event like a car accident, for example. We also know that witnessing or being the victim of violence or serious injury, experiencing physical abuse or sexual abuse in the home can also be traumatic. So it can be a single incident, it could be a series of incidents or a set of more chronic conditions like living in a situation of domestic violence over a period of years, for example. And because children are so dependent on their caregivers for survival and safety, we know that many experiences for them can be traumatic and those experiences might not traumatize an adult. So if you think about the death of a parent, for an adult, it can be really distressing, really difficult, um, can lead to a lot of grief but for a young child the death of a parent can actually be really traumatic. The same with um, surgery for example or invasive medical procedures. For an adult it might be really unpleasant, it might take them a while to really um, kind of cope with what's happened to them, they might feel really distressed but for a young child often it can be really traumatic. So we also know that for children the absence of some of the important experiences that an infant or young child needs can be traumatic. So we're thinking about, you know, when you're hungry, when you're crying, 
like because you need your bottle that you're fed on time you're fed when you're hungry you're changed when you're wet um you're loved you're given cuddles you're responded to um so we know now that neglect can have serious consequences for development so homes where you know parents have their own stresses maybe issues with alcohol or drugs and they find it difficult to hear their baby cry so maybe they leave a baby in a room for hours on end not responding the experience for that baby can be of real terror and this could often be traumatic that's really interesting Kira. so i guess what you're saying is that the trauma can be due to lots of different events and experiences some of those can be an event that actually happens to you but it can also be the absence of something being provided for you that you really actually need in childhood like love care cuddles being fed um as well as really difficult things happening within within maybe the home environment or or in the environment in the community that that can be really difficult as well so which is really interesting it's also really interesting that actually some of the things that we as adults might experience aren't necessarily sort of experienced as traumatic, but actually for children, those experiences can and indeed often are experienced as, as traumatic um, because of their need for sort of protection and safety around them. Um, what about witnessing trauma happening to another person? Would that be something that could sort of cause trauma for children and young people? It's a good question, Karen, because sometimes you do hear people say, you know, children are resilient and children forget and, and those kind of things. But actually, we know that witnessing violent events, let's say domestic violence, um, can actually have quite an impact on a child. So in the 90s, researchers were um, looking at brain scans. They were doing lots of brain research and they happened to come across the idea of what what's now known as mirror neurons so neurons are brain cells and what they discovered was that when we witness someone engage in an action so for example you're sitting beside me there Karen and you're about to drink a cup of tea so you hold a cup up to your lips and you're about to drink it the brain cells the neurons in my brain will fire as if I'm about to drink a cup of tea too and, you know, I wouldn't mind a cup of tea. So actually, <laughs> actually, they're really firing now. Wow. OK. So we know that our brains mirror each other. So me just watching you do something makes my brain respond as if I'm doing the thing too. We know now that um, actually just hearing a sound associated with an action can trigger those mirror neurons so if a child is upstairs in bed while there's violence going on downstairs and they hear it um, what researchers think is that their brains will be responding and will be affected by what they're hearing in the same way as if they're seeing it and in the same way as if they're experiencing it so we know that actually witnessing whether that's directly you're actually seeing something happening or you're hearing it happening can actually be really traumatic for young children too. Okay, Kira, that's really interesting. Those mirror neurons, that's, you know, it really explains why hearing something or seeing something that's really difficult can be really, can be experienced as traumatic mm. for yourself, even though you're, you're not actually involved in it. I guess I was thinking about um, maybe watching a TV programme that there's, 
you know, that there's a lot of violence or mm-hmm. um, that there's difficulties or something tragic happens, just the impact that that has on, on me, particularly, you know, whenever I'm watching those sorts of things. But um, trying to think about, you know, children and young people at home, maybe hearing shouting down the stairs or doors banging or things breaking or, you know, animals barking because mm-hmm. there's something happening. Just just how difficult that must be for them. And that idea of mirror neurons really begins to explain why that's why we know that that has an impact on, on young people and on their physiology and actually how they respond in that situation. Yeah. And we know it ourselves, as you say, if you're watching a really gory frightening movie you feel you feel the emotions yourself even though you know it's a movie so thinking about a child who who is actually witnessing or hearing violence and they know it's their parents mm-hmm. and they're they're also worrying about what the impact will be what will happen mm-hmm. you know is everybody going to be safe can have really quite an impact must be absolutely terrifying mm-hmm. um, particularly for you know very young children and you know, I would imagine the impact can vary based on the age that a young person is whenever they experience that from you know your infancy through to you know your middle childhood your seven or eight year old and and then your your sort of 16 17 year old maybe who's up the stairs and, and begins to hear that just the responses and the thoughts that they would have might be different so Mm -hmm. for younger children it could be that they aren't really able to think cognitively about what's happening but they've got sensory experience of you know that that they're not safe um whereas for older children or young people it might be really difficult that they want to do something about it but and perhaps do do something about it which is detrimental to them but for others that they would find that really difficult and maybe not be able to move Mm -hmm. um so I wonder, you know, is there anything that you could share with us that might explain some of those responses that young people might have? Yeah. So if we think about, you know, our ancestors and, and back in, you know, ancient history, if a human was faced with, for example, a bear or a lion or maybe a, a wild wolf, their body had this amazing way of reacting in order to keep them safe. So our reactions to frightening events are our body and our brain's way of really keeping us safe. Um, So the first response in a situation like that, if you're faced with a lion or a bear, might have been to flee. Um, So their brain would pump out adrenaline, um, the blood would go to the muscles, and the parts of the brain involved in thinking wouldn't be working so well because the brain is really going into survival mode and all your brain and your body's resources are focused on just getting away from that lion. Um, If this wasn't possible, then let's say our human, our ancient ancestor was cornered by the lion and couldn't run, then the next best response that their body could make was to fight. So it's pretty dangerous with with a lion, but maybe say a, um, a violent human uh, it might have made sense to do that. And it's still the brain's attempt to keep the human safe. And if this didn't work, then the brain would tell the body to freeze. So we've got flee, we've got fight, and we've got freeze. And freeze is an attempt to almost like play dead. So your body becomes really stiff. Um, if you've ever seen a, a cat trying to kill a mouse, sometimes the mouse will 
freeze and just become really, really still. Um, and this response happens in humans as well. And it helped our ancestors to cope with danger. So our brains, you know, are really trying to keep us alive, to keep us safe. I guess that's really interesting as well, what you're saying, Kira. So it sounds like those, you know, our ancestors develop mechanisms in order to keep themselves safe, to protect themselves whenever they were faced with danger. Um, and those sort of three that we know about and so far, really, I think we, we probably know a wee bit more now, but that idea of fight, freeze and flight, so running away, staying really, really still, or moving into action where you're sort of moving into that fight mode to try to be able to sort of defend yourself within the context of threat. Um, so it's really interesting to sort of sense that actually our brains do things to help us to keep safe. They're sort of automatic reactions as well, aren't they? Is that what you're saying? They don't they don't think, well, actually, now I'm going to fight or now I'm going to freeze or now I'm going to do it. We do it automatically, don't we? Absolutely, yeah. Often we've no kind of conscious control over it. It just sort of happens because our body kind of kicks into action mm-hmm. to try and protect us. And we don't choose which one. Our body no. chooses, our, our system does that for us, mm-hmm. doesn't it? But dependent on the environment around us and the individual that we are and all of those different things have a, have an influence, but it's we don't really choose. We move into that sort of survival response, don't we? That's right. That's right. And I suppose the tricky thing is that when we're out of danger, then sometimes our brain continues to react in that way, even when the traumatic event is over. So, you know, for a person who went into that freeze response during that traumatic event, you know, every time a reminder of the trauma might come up, then they become stressed, their brain thinks they're in danger again, and then they go back into freeze. So, I mean, we've both worked, Karen, with lots of children who experience this in the context of school. So, for example, they've come from a very difficult background, they're in school, there's a lot of noise, maybe the teacher raises their voice, and their brain thinks they're in danger again. And you know, activates that freeze response and the child is just frozen in their chair, isn't able to think, isn't able to learn, isn't able to, you know, communicate. Um, And that can be really difficult. It can be tricky to spot because it might seem like the child's just switched off or is a bit bored Mm -hmm. um, or not concentrating, but actually they might be in um, a freeze trauma response. I'm sure that must be really difficult and I I can understand how it would be really difficult to spot that sort of response, particularly within the context of a classroom, because you might just think the child's being very quiet or that they're not paying attention, but actually they're really struggling in the environment that they're in. They're really not able to learn or to take in the information because they're so, they're sort of frozen, but they're also probably, I would guess, very vigilant to the environment that they're in because they're trying to spot, you know, what threat might be coming my direction. So that's really interesting. Our brains really try to help us. Are there any other ways? So another example, Karen, is, you know, the child who went into fight mode. Maybe there was violence in their home and they reacted by becoming aggressive themselves. And then maybe they're in the classroom or they're out in the schoolyard and somebody raises their voice, becomes angry and their brain activates that fight response. And they're not even deciding to become aggressive. It's actually that automatic 
survival instinct that kicks in. So it can be really difficult to understand when you see a child become aggressive or rude or violent for seemingly sometimes no reason or no obvious reason. But sometimes it's because it's that trauma response kicking in. Again, that's really interesting, Kira. So it might be that a young person's response within a classroom is really hard for others to understand. So that, you know, a young person might suddenly become quite aggressive in the classroom or verbally talk back to a teacher or stand up and grab somebody else. And it, it's, But it seems to have no apparent reason, but it could be something like a sound or something else that actually has reminded that young person of a really difficult traumatic experience. Um, so I guess we need to think slightly differently about how we try to interpret young people's behaviour in situations like in school or out in the community or maybe under- trying to understand a wee bit more about what's happened to them as, as a child um, and why it might be that they're responding in that way, either by freezing or by fighting. Um, or for children who actually just run away. I have a memory of a young person I did see um, for quite a long time, but he regularly climbed out windows in the school um, and nobody could understand it, but he had come from an environment that was actually really quite traumatic. So he was continually trying to get away. And smaller things like being able to open the door in the classroom enabled him to actually settle a wee bit because he knew that there was a way to leave if he needed to. Um, whereas whenever those things weren't in place, he regularly ran. Um, and one of the, I suppose, the difficulties is that as adults, sometimes we'll sit the child or young person down and say, why did you do that? Why did you hit that person? Why did you talk back to the teacher? Why did you jump out the window and try and reason with them? But the difficulty is it isn't the thinking parts of their brain that are deciding to react in these ways. Often it's that survival trauma response that's actually kicked in. So they may not actually know themselves in a thinking way why it is that they've behaved in a particular way. So for us as adults, then sitting young people down and asking them those questions might actually make them feel a bit cornered and that they don't know the answer to those questions and we're continually sort of asking them to explain themselves or to to look at you while you're speaking to them is another response that we have quite often which can be really difficult for young people too can't it that's right particularly for for young people who've experienced trauma actually eye contact can feel quite threatening and can um sometimes be a trauma reminder even mm-hmm. um and then the idea of punishments for for behavior like that, you know, as adults, we have that idea we need, you know, the child needs to know that that's not okay to hit or run out the window or whatever it is. But it's very difficult if it's been a trauma response, it's an automatic trauma response. So that's really interesting, just in terms of actually what our brains do to try to help us in an automatic way. Um, but we don't think about it, we respond in a way and quite often we don't understand once the traumatic event is over or if we're not in the environment where trauma is occurring but actually we don't really know why we're responding but we could be responding to cues that are reminders um, of difficult experiences that we've had. Are there any other ways that we react to trauma apart from 
that sort of idea of fight or flight or freeze? Karen, there are, yeah, there's a couple of more um, responses that we've really become aware of in the last few years. Um, one of them is called please and appease. And again, it's an automatic response that our brain makes when we're under threat. And it's our brain's way of keeping us safe. So it actually might make more sense if you are faced with danger, with threat to your life, to actually go along with the abuser or the person who's potentially going to become violent towards you. So, for example, if a child is being sexually abused, it might make more sense not to fight, not to try and get away, because actually there's no way of getting away. Um, it's too dangerous to fight. Um, and please and appease might actually be the best response in that situation. Which is really interesting because it might seem contradictory to, to, to people that, that you might please and appease somebody who's actually being very abusive towards you. But again, it's a survival strategy. So it's an, an automatic strategy that our systems have developed for us to try to be able to protect us in those situations. So for others, it might appear, I suppose I'm thinking it's a bit like friend or befriend, um, but actually you're pleasing and appeasing as a way to sort of reduce the level of trauma that you might experience um, or protect yourself, your sort of your actual life mm. um, in a way um, that might seem might seem an unusual strategy, but it's absolutely appropriate. That's the best strategy to use at that point in time. Yeah. And the difficulty with that strategy is that sometimes afterwards people can feel a lot of shame about it. They can feel like, oh, I should have fought back. I shouldn't have let it happen. But actually our brain makes those decisions in the heat of the moment. Um, and we don't have a lot of control about it. We don't have time to think it through. Our brain decides itself, really. It goes yeah. into an automatic reaction. And for some people, please and appease, as you say, Karen, is just the best strategy. I think that's a really important point, Kara, because it's really, really well important for for other people to understand that actually that experience or that that sort of please and appease has been the the thing that actually has been able to protect the person to the best at that point in time and also to have that sense of shame and guilt um i think is also something that people do experience so it's really really important for others to understand actually that that wasn't the choice at that point in time it wasn't something that you choose to do it, it was a strategy that we are sort of is built into us in those sorts of situations to actually use um but we don't use it consciously it, it happens mm, and it's it's to keep us safe so Kerry, you've talked a wee bit about the sort of please and appease sort of strategy um are, are there any other strategies that might arise yes yeah, so there's another strategy karen called attach or cry for help um, and this is one of the earliest responses to trauma so if you think about a young baby when they're distressed they use crying um, and infants try you know try to get close to their caregivers in order to help them feel safe when they're distressed at all um, but a touch or cry for help can happen with older children with teenagers and even with adults um, and it's our way of gaining safety really 
getting other people around us to keep us safe. The problem though is that it's often not a safe strategy in a family where there's maybe abuse going on. So sometimes in these situations then when a child feels the emotions that have come up, say in school for example, they're reminded of the sense of danger that's maybe happened in the home. Sometimes their brain will um, activate this attach or cry for help response and they'll want to get really close, maybe to a teacher, for example. So I've certainly worked with children who were experiencing lots of trauma at home, but were maybe unusually affectionate with strangers, wanting to get up on you know, strangers' knees or wanting hugs with people that they didn't know very well. Again, this can be a trauma response. It's, it's a way for the, the child to feel safer, to get close to somebody, even if actually when that traumatic experience isn't happening and they're looking for affection, you know, from people that they don't know, we know as adults that's actually not that safe. But in the moment of danger, in the moment of threat, it can be a useful strategy. Okay, that's really interesting, actually, because I would have worked with a number of young people as well who actually would have been, you know, that they would have wanted to um, sit on your knee or, mm-hmm. you know, they would want a hug or, and I guess for me, because I know these sorts of things would be, I would know that's an alert sign for me. Um, and actually that, you know, there's something about helping a young person to understand a wee bit about why it is that they perhaps do that and and why it might actually be dangerous for them whenever it's with a person that they don't know. So I guess there's something about helping young people to sort of begin to understand why it might be that they respond in that way. Um, And that's for sort of older young people. So for, um, you know, for maybe younger children, it's, it's a wee bit more difficult to be able to do that. But it's also really important that we don't shame young people in that sort of a situation by through rejection or telling them off and saying that's not appropriate, but equally being gentle in terms of actually being able to begin to try to understand what that behaviour is about. Yeah, because similar to the other responses, Karen, they often don't have any control over it. And so if we react negatively to them, they can feel a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is important to be really understanding. I suppose one of the difficulties as children grow older and get into adolescence and young adulthood, sometimes this um, response can lead to um, maybe promiscuity, for example, you know, getting close to people that maybe they don't know very well, they don't know are trustworthy. That's really interesting, Kira, just as well. I can see how then it can move into whilst it was a safety mechanism that we've developed over time to um, protect us within the, within the within the context of a very traumatic or fearful situation that actually that very strategy can actually be something that could be quite dangerous for us in, in other situations yeah so it is important for you know for the adults around children to recognize if these strategies are happening well thank you Kira. so that sounds like there's about five different responses that we sort of have have a sort of a knowledge of um, that actually are really useful within a tra- within a situation which is traumatic, but actually we also know that those sorts of responses can be um, 
we can experience cues that remind us of those situations later on and we may respond in the same way again through fight or flight or freeze or by sort of that befriending, appeasing strategy or that sort of strategy of trying to attach and seek sort of comfort from, from somebody else. Um, so it, it might look very unusual in at very different situations. And that's a really, it's really important to emphasise that, Karen, that, you know, for people who've experienced trauma, for children, for adolescents, that even seemingly you know normal experiences say in the classroom or you know out and about in the family can actually be trauma reminders okay. so so for us as adults we might not realize that maybe the way we've spoken maybe um a smell that the young person smells maybe a noise can be associated with something that's happened back then um, and can lead to these automatic trauma responses that we've talked about without them having really any control over them happening. Okay, because I guess maybe sometimes even the way you might look at somebody else could could be a trauma reminder as well. And there's something about, or, because we all have bad days sometimes, and um, we might just be great to you that day, but actually for young people who've experienced very significant trauma, they're likely to pick up those cues very, very quickly because they're much more vigilant to them and have a sense of that experience. So it would be really important to actually say, do you know what, I'm having a really bad day today. Mm. If you know you're having a bad day, so that young person is sort of cued into the fact that it's about you're having a bad day, as opposed to actually there's a, a threat in their environment um, at that point in time. That's right, because we, we know now that children who've experienced trauma early in their life, they're more likely to um, perceive or imagine that there's you know, people around them are angry, even if people around them are just stressed or grouchy mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, they're more likely to imagine that, you know, you're going to get really angry and aggressive with me if that's what they've experienced in the past. Okay. Okay. So very tuned in. Very, very tuned very, in. Very, very tuned in. Much more so than others who haven't had those experiences. Yes. Um, okay. So, but I suppose I'm wondering, um, I guess there's something about there's there's the different ways that we may react to trauma, but not all individuals or not all trauma survivors will react in the same way. Is that is that right? That's right. So for you know, for some young people they might go through something really stressful, but after a few weeks they seem okay, they're able to be back in school and learning and able to have fun with their friends, sleeping okay. So sometimes it's hard to know what makes a young person recover or not? Well, I suppose a couple of examples. So um, Bessel van der Kolk is, is a trauma kind of expert and psychiatrist. And he, he talks about this, you know, a, a child of a family friend of his who actually had witnessed the September 11th terrorist attacks. So the child's classroom was very near to the tower and had seen all that went on. And he visited the family in the weeks following the attacks and actually noticed that the child was doing well, didn't seem overly affected by what happened. And the reason that he suggests is that children really take their lead from their parents and that child's parents were coping well, you know, were um, nurturing the child, giving the child a chance to talk about what had happened 
I think he was like um, drawing pictures of what had happened and he had a really good relationship with his parents. And so he wasn't overly traumatized by what happened. I guess that sounds like that was because his parents were able to provide the space mm. and the safety for him to actually begin to process what had happened at that point in time. So in a loving sort of nurturing way, um, which meant actually that whilst he'd seen and experienced something very traumatic, um, how his parents responded to him later on and immediately after that enabled him to be able to process it so he wasn't he didn't then become traumatized is that's that right. sort of what you're saying yeah that's right it's really about how well we can figure out what's happened to us in the context of the people around us so a, another example let's say a child is with a parent and they're involved in a car accident and the parent themselves feels a lot of guilt about what happened is very affected by the car accident themselves is very wary about getting into the car feels very anxious driving again and really is so affected themselves and they're not able to give their child the kind of space and the love and the support for the child to recover so both the parent and the child then are very affected and can be traumatized in that situation that's really interesting. So parents' reactions and feelings are actually really key in terms of actually helping children and young people recover or perhaps not recover, depending on actually the availability of the parent and their own responses to really difficult traumatic events. And the difficulty is, Karen, you know, as adults, we can be traumatised too, as we know. So that adult who's been in a car accident really needs their own you know, social support and friends and family around them that can really help them to recover from what happened too. Very difficult if you're very traumatised yourself to help your child recover. Yeah, so it'll be really important for actually to have your own friends that you can um, you can talk to to try to process that as an adult, which would then enable you to be able to be more available for your own child or perhaps even to, to connect with a friend that actually get your friend to help your child um, to be able to process that too so long as the young person has somebody to be able to begin to try to process that and to know that their parent is available and is looking out for them. Um, That's right and it, you know it's not necessarily you have to sit the child down and uh, to, you know get them to talk through what happened. For young children often they'll draw pictures or they'll play games about what's happened that's distressed them but just being available, being, you know, being able to be there if they need to talk about it, that it's open, that it's okay to talk about it, that they're picking up from you as the adult, that you're not going to be overly distressed by them talking about it. Okay, which is actually really interesting because I'm, I'm sort of thinking about sometimes whenever people do really want the child to sit down and, you know, spend an hour, talk about it, do all those sorts of things. But children don't really work that way, sure, they don't care, though we tend to Maybe they might play for 10 minutes and you sort of draw about, about what's happened, but then they'll go and do something that looks really normal. And I think that's hard for adults to understand because it's not really how we process things. Um, but it's I suppose what you're saying is it's about being able to chin in to actually what the child needs at the point in time, whenever maybe something that they do want to talk or they are playing in a certain way that you're available in there and be able to, to nurture and be kind and understanding at those points in time. Yeah, so it's really about taking the child's lead, Karen, isn't it? You know, sometimes I think as adults, 
we think children should react in the same way as us but often you know if say there's been a tragic death in the family and you know adults are really grieving the children will be too but they'll also be playing they'll also be joking sometimes and and as adults that can be hard to understand Mm. but that's how a child manages difficult emotions it's very normal for a child to be able to do that isn't it Mm. so they sort of dip in and out don't they um and I suppose it's our response to that in terms of being able to acknowledge that that's actually a very normal reaction for, for a child. That's right. So are there other different behaviours that you might notice with some children and not others? Could you say a wee bit more about that, Kira? Yeah, so for some children and young people who've been through trauma, their stress response systems are constantly on high alert. So, you know, for some young people, this will be really obvious. So they seem hyperactive, very busy, you know, can't sit still for very long. Maybe in the classroom, they really struggle to sit in their seats. They might be easily startled by loud noises or even just any noise, you know, outside, for example, outside the window, they might be, you know, jump out of their skin at a noise that we as adults mightn't even really notice. But for other young people, the impact of trauma will be much more subtle. So on the outside, They might seem okay, they might seem even independent, maybe a little withdrawn, but underneath the surface, their body will actually be quite stressed. And it's a little bit like, Karen, you know, that image of a swan and floating on top of the lake. It looks very peaceful, but underneath the surface, if you look under the water, their feet are going really, really fast. Um, So it's that idea that on the surface, a child might seem like they're not affected, but actually you know, underneath the surface, they really are quite stressed. Um, So just because a child maybe is quiet in the classroom and not, you know, disruptive, it doesn't mean that they're not traumatised. And we've talked about, you know, the please and appease response, and we've talked about the freeze response. So there's lots of different reactions to trauma. Okay, Kara, thanks for that. We've covered a lot today around what trauma is and how it affects us. But we're going to leave the conversation there and pick it up again next time when we talk about how to help children and young people recover immediately after something difficult or potentially traumatic has happened. We'll also probably refer to this podcast during our next conversation. For all our listeners, there's a short survey embedded in the text around this podcast. We'd really love to get feedback and comments from you all, as well as ideas and suggestions about future topics you might like us to cover or to discuss. Kira, thank you so much for joining us today for all your insights around trauma and how it affects us. Thanks, Karen, and I'm looking forward to our next podcast together. And thanks to all our listeners. We hope you find today's podcast useful. We look forward to you joining us next time on Youth Mental Health with Northern Trust. <laughs>